Thank you very much, Sarah, and thank you everybody for coming. Uh, sorry that we haven't got more people, but the quality is certainly there. Very pleased to follow John uh, on Margaret Bonfield, because of course Margaret Bonfield chaired the TUC General Council uh, meeting where uh, Walter Citrine was appointed. And um, that, that, that linkage is there, and his, his presentation of the period, I felt, was very balanced and very, very important. I hope to follow it. Uh, Citrine, of course, is an even more controversial figure. Uh, for, for, for many, particularly on the left, but um, I think unjustly he has been forgotten. And uh, one of the purposes of my writing and stuff is to try and restore and bring back a knowledge and an appreciation of the positive aspects of his career. Um, just taking first of all the slide with his name, Walter MacLennan. Of course, the Scottish, well, his mother was Scottish Presbyterian background. His father was Italian um, Liverpool background, Citrini. Um, grandfather who actually came to, to, to Wallasey or to, to Liverpool itself and then to Wallasey. But you can see even from the, 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 the dates, 1887 to 1993, 95. Longevity was his, one of his great strengths, I think. But um, General Secretary, 1926 to 46. I was born in 1946. <laughs> President of the International Federation of Trade Unions, 1928 to 45. And, of course, laterally, Baron Citrine uh, of Wembley, where I live, because he, where he lived, 1947 to 1983. Okay, um, I've got a fairly lengthy, because uh, his career is such a massive span of the 20th century and of the key events, uh, that in itself it's a history. But he, he was recalled from a visit to Russia in October 1925 on the sudden death of his boss. Walter Citrine became acting general secretary of the TUC and was soon pitched into the most serious industrial conflict of the 20th century, the general strike of 1926. As the new boy, he was not, of course, in charge of the strike. Indeed, his advice to prepare better for it was ignored. But as the leading TUC officer, he was present at all the crucial meetings and has left a vivid account of those 10 days which shook the British labor movement in his autobiography. Excuse me, I'll just get some more. And I have a slide to show you him at that time. Here we go. But it, it was indeed a turning point for the TUC and the whole trade union movement, as the syndicalist philosophy which underpinned that general strike was tested to destruction. Despite its deeply disappointing but predictable outcome, there was general agreement that the new man had acquitted himself competently during it. Even the miners' leader, Arthur Cook and Herbert Smith, did not fault him. So in September 1926 at Bournemouth, aged 39, the Liverpool electrician was elected unopposed as the youngest general secretary of the TUC. Over the next 20 years, he would come to dominate the organisation and become one of the outstanding figures of the British and international labour movement. I just want to take you to... There's a, a picture in, in um, later period. Uh, his background will come to in a minute. But this I wanted to give you, and I'm sure that Paul will like, the Liverpool docks of the 1900s. This was Citrine's original stamping ground as an electrician um, a district official 
uh, with a lot of members in the, in the Birkenhead docks and so on. So I thought that picture would be interesting because it brings out the reality of um, industrial life at that time to an extent. But I'm also going to leave up this picture of his socialist vision. I mentioned that he, he actually uh, was coming back from a visit to the USSR when his boss died. But people forget he was in fact quite enthusiastic for the Russian Revolution. I had been impressed by Lenin's picture of an electric republic, of course, with his background, organized on such lines as would ensure to every citizen, however humble, the advantages of, advantages of a planned economy and the blessings of modern civilization. That was written in 1964 in his autobiography. But I think it stands today as a socialist vision of what people felt at that time in the 1920s. They saw the Russian Revolution as a beacon of hope. And so what happened afterwards, they wanted to know at the time. But clearly, uh, Citrine shared that vision. But on his return to their Victoria offices, which the TUC still shared with the Labour Party, he says he had no clear idea what to do next. But we know from his autobiography that as Assistant General Secretary of the Manchester-based ETU, Electrical Trade Union, he was already thinking that the TUC should become the central power of the trade union movement. However, the jealously guarded autonomy of the, the then 200 or so unions TGW, AEU and NUGMW had recently formed their own large-scale amalgamations would prevent such grand dreams being realised. Yet in the following decades, the TUC did come to play a central role in the affairs of all unions and of the country. Ernie Bevin, with his powerful Transport and General Workers Union in particular, appreciated that, and together they carved out a major role for the unions, both industrially and politically. I will argue that it was Citrine's vision and determined activity national, nationally and internationally, more than most, which enabled the TUC to acquire such authority. He began fairly low-key, but methodically, first in gaining the confidence and goodwill of his general counsel. I'll go back. Uh, yes. Uh, just giving an outline of his, his ETU career. Um, in, in Merseyside and Manchester from 1911 to 1924. So he, he began fairly methodically seeking the confidence and goodwill of the General Council of Union leaders by improving the service which he provided them and to their unions, concentrating on administrative and executive matters, not policy. Significant, significantly also, he sought the confidence confidence and goodwill of his small but very able and highly motivated TUC staff, such as Vincent Chusen, who was then head of organization, a future general secretary, Herbert Tracy, who's a very important guy, his, his confidant and key publicity officer, Walter Milne Bailey, uh, a talented head of research who died unfortunately in 1935 of cancer. George Woodcock replaced him and he too would be a future General Secretary, and Francis MacDonald, who was his private secretary, was also a key figure uh, in Citrine's TUC career. And it was the dedication of this small staff, whose rigorous research, documentation, reports, and ability to hold their own with non-union specialists, which became a distinctive TUC feature. And this owed much 
to Citrine's style of leadership. We have a photo of them all just before they moved to Transport House in Smith Square in 1928, which I've distributed. And you can just uh, look at the clothes from the 20s. In, in itself, quite interesting piece. But it just uh, gives a picture of that, that core group that um, was the mainstay of, of his, his effort. So nobody as an individual can do the, achieve the things he did, but rather with, with that kind of support. Uh, but he, he did stamp his, his mark on it. There were many immediate challenges. Now this gets to the controversial bit. Following the call of, of the general strike in May 1926, the prolonged minor strike and our lockout overshadowed all else, ending in defeat in November on worse terms than could have been obtained earlier. The TUC leaders were subjected to a savage barrage uh, of bitter and unfair, in my opinion, recrimination for, quotes, betraying, close quotes, the miners. A rival leadership organisation, the National Minority Movement, which had been set up under the inspiration and direction of the Red International of Labour Unions uh, from Moscow in 1924, stepped up its attacks on all officially elected union leaderships and the TUC. They were reviled as traitors, renegades and capitalist lackeys. And this continuous stream of abuse was having its effect in demoralizing the elected leadership of all the unions. The minority movement's slogan was, don't trust your leaders and change your leaders. Now the TUC lefts, who were very influential in Citrine's early period, former allies of the minority movement, they became the special targets for this particular group around the country. So it was against this background that Citrine, a long-standing socialist, Independent Labour Party and Labour Party, developed his horror of the Moscow-directed Red International of Labour Unions and of the minority movement. He had originally been, what he called, enthused by Lenin's picture of an electric republic, and he had visited the Soviet Union as an enthusiast in 1925 at the personal invita invitation of the all-Russian Union leader Mikhail Tomsky, with whom he got on quite friendly. Back home, as part of the TUC le left leadership, he was still pressing for the Russian unions to be allowed to join the mainstream International Federation of Trade Unions, if IFTU, in 1926. But since 1924, they, the lefts on the TUC, who were the leadership, um, Alf Purcell, people like that, George Hicks, uh, John, John uh, uh, Aslev guy, I forget his name, but they, they had, in fact, poo-pawed the uh, IFTU executives' suspicions of the Russian unions. They said, these guys aren't independent. These guys are part of the state machine, and uh, you, should, you should not bring them in on their terms, because they, all they will do is undermine the IFTU. But Citrine and the others said, no, no, we are for international uh, trade union unity, and we, we believe that they should, they should, in fact, be brought in. But now, the unreasonable demands and vile abuse poured on them by the Russian, in quotes, union, quotes, leadership, after the call off the general strike, now caused them to change their minds. It was clear now who was calling the shots, the CPSU uh, and the Commonwealth. It came to a head at the Edinburgh Conference in September 1927, when the General Council, including its left members, announced the breakup of the Anglo-Russian Joint Advisory Committee. 
It was characteristic of Citrin that he decided not to take any more shit from the communists. In defense of his colleagues, he wrote a series of articles in the Labour magazine in 1927-1928, accusing the national minority movement of being a front for the Red International and the CPGP, and of a deliberately organized attempt to capture the trade union movement and to exploit it for a revolutionary subversive purpose. The General Council issued these articles as a pamphlet soon after called Democracy or Disruption, an examination of the communist influences in the trade unions in 1928. This followed a range of actions being taken by all the major unions, including the left-led AU, banning their branches from affiliating or, or attending uh, minority movement conferences or supporting minority movement caucus-organized candidates in union elections. Documents were found exposing its secretive caucus operations. <coughs> These union leadership moves soon isolated the, what was called the MM, the MM's communist, communist challenge, and it collapsed not long after due to internal divisions. Even the miners, particularly in Scotland, began to reject their hardline advice, which had prevented their union from settling their dispute on better terms. Citrine's bravery in publishing his courageous expose of what was then a powerful militant global force, and you mustn't underestimate this, the Russian um, communist challenge was global and it was powerful, it, it had a huge network all over the world and it had resources. But that's never been appreciated. So to take them on by an individual, even in his position, I think was quite brave. And he, he suffered calumny which is a false and defamatory statements aimed at damaging his reputation for the rest of his career for it. We now know that the Lenin School in Moscow turned out about 150 alumni between 1926 and 1937 as a trained, responsive and carefully vetted cohort of revolutionary activists dedicated to fomenting the Comintern leader's keenly expected British Revolution. That has been academically established. Um, Kevin Morgan, who was himself from the Communist Party, documented this. So I don't think there was any doubt that Citrine was right to actually expose an attempt to take over the British trade unions uh, for ulterior purposes. Now, I, I bring this at the front so that we get it right out in the open, because people actually uh, see Citrine as an anti-communist, a bureaucrat, all the rest of it. But in fact, there was very good reasons why he became, and not just him, but the entire General Council, including many of the former very radical pro-Soviet uh, members, were completely pissed off by what they saw happening. So, we can park that to, to an extent because it did not uh, define his career, far from it. It did not define his operation and the TUC's operation. An equally serious challenge for them was the, de the demoralization and victimization and general loss of union membership following the defeat of the general strike and rising unemployment. Ironically, it was the Tory government's Trade Union and Trade Disputes Act 1927 which provided a union rallying point. This banned general strikes and sympathy actions, banned civil servants and local government workers from affiliating to the Labour Party and to the TUC and made contri contributors to Labour political funds opt-in. Citrine and the General Council seized on this bill 
to mount a widespread campaign of opposition which united all unions and activists behind them. He addressed meetings all over the country exposing this attempt to shackle the unions and lobbied Parliament vigorously at every stage of the bill. Relations with the Labour leadership were also restored, overcoming the feeling of alienation which the TUC had felt about the 1924 minority Labour government. The TUC campaign had little impact, of course, on the legislation itself, but it united the, the Labour movement itself and restored some, some morale. Um, and it undoubtedly prepared for Labour's next major electoral advance in 1929. Now, obviously we're just racing through uh, what is a very intense and complicated period. But another more daring initiative then was to explore the possibilities of cooperation rather than conflict with the employer organisations in formal joint consultative bodies. This led to a remarkable series of conferences in 1928 with some of the most senior executives of large companies like ICI and Lord Mond is obviously the, the name that we think of, the Mond-Turner talks. talks. Uh, G GEC was another one of the big employers there and 23 others in what became known as the Mond-Turner talks. Every industrial issue imaginable was discussed with a surprisingly positive um, manner. Rationalisation and amalgamation, security and status of the workers, housing, health and unemployment insurance, education and industry, effects of taxation and rates, works councils, financial participation by the workers, investigation into the causes of disputes and victimisation, and so on. They issued a joint report with some surprisingly radical recommendations. Their more controversial proposal was for a permanent National Industrial Council in effect an industrial parliament to consider these type issues. That early corporatist, I put that in quotes, venture, did not get off the ground, mainly on account of opposition from the established employer organisations. There was surprisingly little opposition in the union ranks. Even the Miners' Federation supported it against Arthur Cook's opposition. The talks were suspended in 1929, after the employer organisations instead agreed to participate for the first time in a joint allocation committee to consult with the TUC on a range of matters. For Citrine and Bevin, an equally important objective was to head off the anti-union reaction of the smaller employers and Tory backwardsmen embodied in the 1927 Anti-Union Act, which it did. So, um, these two initiatives were quite important to getting the new TUC uh, central to the, the, the uh, industrial role that it, it would take on. And it was clearly a departure from the previous strategic direction of the TUC, which um, not just Citroën, but the whole General Council, and with the support of all the major unions, we must remember. So after a rocky start, he had a flaming row with Ernie Bevin in the council chamber, who had at attacked his head of research, Walter Min Bailey, Citrine had to stand up and did stand up for them. And it was Bevan who stormed out, saying that they've got it in for me. Citrine found that Bevin uncannily shared his views on a range of issues, and especially on the future direction of the TUC. In his 1964 autobiography, he recalled how 
Our ideas were so closely related, our thinking so closely parallel, that without any formal collaboration, we reached similar conclusions. This amazing partnership had, has puzzled historians ever since. For Citrine, the attraction was obvious. Bevin, General Secretary of the huge TNGW, was already a power in the union movement, controlling as he did a block vote of one and a quarter million at the TUC and Labour conferences. Bevin never warmed to Citrine personally, but he developed considerable respect for him on account of the growing authority within the General Council, at TUC congresses and publicly. Not that he would ever say so. Bevan admired Citrine's forensic ability to put across council policies so coherently. Nor did Citrine play up to Bevin, partly because of what he called an independent streak to his nature, but ma mainly because he knew that union leaders on the uh, other union leaders, other powerful union leaders on the General Council who were not enamoured of what they called, they nicknamed Napoleon Bevin, if they saw Citrine sucking up to him, you can imagine the balancing act he had to, he had to carry through to maintain his authority with his colleagues and to project to the trade union movement itself, conference after conference. There's no doubt, however, but that Citrine and Bevin had a chemistry which was special. And from the late 1920s, it helped made the TUC the formidable force it became in British and international affairs. But first, they had to endure the fiasco of 1931, which John touched upon also. For a time, things had improved considerably between the TUC leaders and Ramsay MacDonald's second minority government from 1929. Bevan was appointed to the influential Macmillan Committee on the working of the finance and credit system with Keynes, whom Citrine regarded as Britain's foremost economist and other experts. Both regularly briefed Citrine separately on what was going on. The TUC also persuaded MacDonald to bring in a bill to repeal the 1927 Act, but key aspects were opposed by their temporary Liberal allies, causing it to be dropped in 1930. Then the worst depression ever swept all other issues aside. The government's handling of the financial crisis of 1931 was made the acid test of the government's competence by the city, the stock exchange, the press and the international bankers, threatening confidence in the pound. Sadly, the Chancellor, Philip Snowden, quickly succumbed to this pressure and proposed deep uh, cuts in benefits of about 10%, which MacDonald, who Citrine regarded as a woolly thinker in terms of economics, committed to. The Labour cabinet was split and pressure from the General Council, which Citrine and especially Bevin drove, created deadlock. MacDonald brought down the Labour government, forming instead a national government, in quotes, with the Tories and Liberals, to bring in the austerity measures they regarded as vital. They went to the country soon after and secured a landslide mandate, with only 46 Labour MPs being returned. Although Macdonald and Snowden's actions were reprehensible, I think that Citrine regretted how hard they had pushed. They would have had to pick up the bits on both sides of the Labour movement after that, during the rest of the Great Depression and in the increasingly threatening international environment of the 1930s. With his increasing exposure of what was happening in the wider world, Citrine developed a broader outlook 
than, the mo than most senior figures in British public life at that time. As president of the IFTU from 1928, he chaired its executive meetings in Berlin from 1931 to 1933, and so saw the rise of the Nazis and the destruction of the trade unions there at close range. In a landmark report to the TUC Congress in September 1933 entitled Dictatorship and the Trade Union Movement, he warned of the serious threats to unions and to democracy itself of the Nazi regime. Now, he did not endear himself to the communist or far labor left either, that he included the dictatorship of the proletariat in Moscow as a threat to democracy. That's obviously a very controversial area as we're getting into here. But it did not endear him to those. He blamed the German communists for splitting the labor movement there since the 1918 revolution. Though he was also critical of the Social Democrats' failure to resist the Nazis at all. So quite a difficult position. Back home, he joined with the other, um, his old adversary, Winston Churchill and others on public platforms seeking to mobilize British opinion uh, against the Nazi threat. Now, Churchill's far-seeing opposition is also well known, less so people like Citrine, who chaired a number of their meetings. From that time also, the TUC was a strong supporter of supplying arms to the Spanish Republican government, though they resisted calls for a general strike over it. Citrine's TUC pressed for rearmament from there on, and the General Council were instrumental in overturning Labour's pacifist policies in 1935. This is mainly remembered for Bevin's brutal personal attack on Labour leader George Lansbury at the Labour conference, but Citrine was also a gentler behind-the-scenes influence in getting Lansbury to resign. As Joint Secretary of the TUC Labour Party National Council of Labour, then a powerful body, Sir Walter, as he had become, was influential in fusing TUC ideas on labor policies and the beverage report, nationalization, social welfare, and the National Health Service. All of these, which would bear fruit in 1945, were all hammered out in that National Council of Labor in the 30s. So it was all the, their initiatives on a wide range of social as well as industrial issues, which also helped to give considerable authority to the TUC in national affairs. But it was their participation in the coalition government's wartime effort that really established them as what was called an estate of the realm. They mobilized the unions behind the war effort from 1940. As the army was being lifted from the beaches of Dunkirk, they persuaded unions to accept pretty draconian emergency legis legislation for the duration of the war. This suspended the right to strike relaxed restrictive practices, and generally gave Bevin power to direct labor <coughs> during the wartime, towards the wartime armaments and munitions industries. Unlike the case during World War I, they ensured that workers and unions were recognized for their production efforts and consulted at every level and involved in a myriad of committees. It was to this recognition that we can attribute the growth in union membership and power during the war and after. 1945. Bevin's role in all this is well known. Less so Citrine's huge role on behalf of the trade unions and the TUC during the war. He had been invited to join the coalition government by Churchill, but declined, preferring that he, what he regarded as the equally crucial, though far less pay, well paid, wider remit of the TUC. 
He did, however, have immediate and priority access to ministers, to all ministers, as a privy councillor, with cabinet status on Churchill's instructions. So he could walk in, more or less, anywhere and engage on the issues that were being raised by him, not just by his union colleagues, but often by employers, as regards some of the problems of production and the issues arising. So um, he developed a particularly close rapport with Churchill during the Blitz. They used to recite uh, boyhood poetry to each other <laughs> to keep up their spirits. His biography is a wonderful evocation of that sort of personal life. I would recommend it highly. And Tom Wilson here, who's been also reading it, it's a very vivid account, well written, surprisingly well written by some trade union leaders, I have to say, but extremely well written and evocative of the period. So I would recommend that. But part of, of his usefulness to the government and, and to the unions was, of course, as a, an emissary to both the American unions and the Russian unions. In 1940, he went to America. And he went back in 1942. This is the time when the Americans, before Pearl Harbor, when the Americans were still as a very strong isolationist movement, not least in the trade unions. And Citrine's role was to try to persuade them. He toured entire uh, American states and Canada, uh, arguing. But equally, he went to Russia in 1941. This is a man who actually had a strong regard for Russia. And, what they were try trying to achieve, even though he had strongly opposed to the, the uh, communist leadership in many ways. But he went there in 1941, once the Russians had come out of the pact with, with Hitler, to assure them that the trade unions would work together and of course the convoys would, would deliver uh, materials and arms um, to them. He went back in 1943 his personal bravery, he was going to Moscow in 1941, just as Hitler was approaching it. And when they moved, they had to move the entire uh, population almost, 400 miles down. So that personal courage and that incredible willingness to travel, you can imagine the travelling in those days by plane or by ship. It has to be taken into account. But when it was all done, he went back to Transport House. And until he retired in April 1946, in recognition of his contribution, he got the TUC's gold badge. Not a lot else, I have to say. More significantly, he became Baron Citrine of Wembley, where he lived. And a national coal board position uh, in education and training until his dream job as a former electrician came along in 1947. Manny Shinwell invited him to chair the newly nationalized Electricity Council. And he, he would enjoy that role for another 10 years as chair, and five years after that. He didn't retire finally to 1962 at the age of 75. Under his leadership, this, that industry developed some of the most advanced industrial relations systems um, with their unions. So, a little bit about his personal life to finish. You've seen his career um, for quite a substantial 
union career, far from the, the bureaucrat that, that, that people portrayed him as, even though he was a good bureaucrat. He was quite a good administrator. And he, he modernised the TUC's systems. Michael Foot used to sneer, I think it was Bevan, used to, Bevan Ann used to sneer at him, that uh, Citrine's got piles of files. Personally, he was, he was a fascinating character. He was brought up in Wallasey, where his ship's, ship's rigger dad had a drink problem, which kept them poor. He lost his mother and other family members to tuberculosis. He left school at 12 to labour in a dusty flour mill until his father got him an electrical apprenticeship. He was self-taught. This is one of the very interesting things about the trade union leaders of that time. They were all autodidacts, like many other union leaders. But uniquely, he developed this dual disciplinary knowledge. Electrical theory, which was, of course, the, 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 te the technology of the time, electricity in industrial use, and socialist trade union theory. He used to talk about his early youth uh, being influenced by um, one of the um, Social Democratic Federation activists. And so he read all Marx. He read, he read all the, 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 the books, shall we say, uh, even though he, he didn't imbibe it entirely. But he had also acquired an unusual skill with Greg Shorthand, which stood him in good stead all his life. There he was, ticking away, writing down, and keeping a record. The NSC has got a bloody archive, a mountain high. And, and not, not just the uh, TUC's library, which I've used. There's more stuff uh, in Warwick. There's more stuff all around the place. Um, this man left an entire depository of day-to-day -day notes of the meetings he attended, which are contemporary notes and therefore themselves a part of history. But he worked as an electrician all around the Mersey in St. Helens um, as a contracting electrician. He also worked in the, in the St. Helens coal field. And he, 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 his, his autobiography talks about his experience there. And he worked for Pil at Pilkington's Glass, installing some um, modern electrical equipment. Uh, he joined the union in 1911. He was elected almost within two years as the convener for the three Marathi branches at the time. And he became full-time district secretary in 1914, the first in, the, in that job, just winding up. And so on, you've got the rest of it on there. He retired in 1962, I said, age 72. He continued to keep in touch with his union and TUC colleagues, and he began to attend the Lords to contribute thoughtfully. He moved to Devon on the death of his wife in 1976, where he would live for another seven years, dying age 95. It was truly said that Walter Citrine took the TUC and the trade unions from, the, from Trafalgar Square to Downing Street.